This is Secrets to Win Big, your roadmap to sustained growth. Brought to you by Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, brand whisperer, top brand growth driver, and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. Find him at zenmango.com. And now, here's your host, Arjun Sen. Welcome to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. This is Arjun, and I always love to win, but what I found is winning big puts us all on the path to sustaining long-term wins, and that really is major fun. One of the things in this podcast, we bring you secrets and insights from leaders from all walks of life, from all over the world, and the reason it's very important is we are all different, Our leadership paths are different. And that's the reason these unique secrets really help and blend and shape up our individual journey. In that spirit today, it's truly my pleasure to introduce to you my VIP guest, Ira Barr. Ira, his current role is Chief Commercialization Officer at AliveCore. AliveCore is a digital health startup company that is completely changing the medical startup business. It's the maker of Cardio Mobile, the most clinically validated personal ECG in the market. And what makes this discussion and conversation fascinating is Ira's track record of high impact at the highest level all through his career. His past experience includes a C-level executive at a four public companies, includes Sirius Radio, Dish, and Hevo interim CEO at Silicon Valley Startup Inspirator. Products and and national corporate trademarks that he has created are household names. And one of those is he's the creator of the serious trademark. And of course, I really want to know in our conversation how he came up with that. So with that, it's truly a pleasure. Ira, welcome to Secrets to Win Big. Thank you so much, Arjun, for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to chat with you, and thank you so much for that kind introduction. Uh, it is certain that I will send it to my mother. Absolutely. That's, I'm so glad you know, I could do something good right away. And, and again, that introduction was literally a subset of what Ira's accomplishments are. So Ira, let's start with AliveCore. Okay? What got you excited about joining the digital health startup and build a brand that is completely in uncharted territory and creating a category not in cardiology, but also in medical health startups? Well, it was the very newness of this category and this company that were things that attracted me to it. One of the things that I take pride in in my career is that I have worked in a range of different industries. And I take pride in being able to learn and synthesize new information rapidly. And then if I'm successful, turn that into successful business plans. Um, I've worked, as you indicated, in everything from satellite radio and satellite TV to a high-end vacation club. And that was the other Silicon Valley startup that I've been involved in. And uh, that was a completely new set of facts, a completely new customer, a new set of value propositions and consumer dynamics that had to be learned, understood, leveraged, marketed to, and profited uh, from. So the idea of going into digital health held the uh, interest of it being an entirely new space. And of course, the, the added benefit 
of actually being something where you are doing a true empirical good for people in that you are assisting them with their health. I think you come across a lot of companies and every company tries to find some means in their corporate mission to talk about some notion of improving people's lives. But at the end of the day, uh, someone watching a better TV show or getting a better experience with their phone uh, is not really having an impact on their lives except in some derived extrapolated form. Uh, when you deliver a product that measures health metrics or delivers some sort of, sort of therapy, you actually very tangibly and empirically uh, have changed and improved their lives. So this really, this opportunity for the first time allowed me to work on a business that genuinely helped people build uh, happier, better, healthier lives. Love that. And to me, I think that's so incredibly powerful. What you talked about is making an impact in other people's life for good. And on that note, I just want to build on one. Something you talked about is you learn and synthesize information rapidly. Like that is such an incredible skill because now you are not limited by amount of information you process. Like what is a secret for you to process information so rapidly? You know, I think that anyone who is a good student uh, and knows how to learn should be good at synthesizing information. But I think that sometimes what happens in business, especially with people um, as they get more advanced in their careers, is that they become a bit impatient uh, with respect to their consumption of new information. Uh, their minds uh, become a little less flexible. Their dispositions become a bit more intransigent. Uh, they adopt more of an executive role in which their instincts and their gut, a word that's used way too often in business, tends to uh, dominate uh, their thinking and decision-making uh, more than uh, it might perhaps in an earlier part of their career. Um, and as a result, I think sometimes their ability to learn, even if they were good students at some point in their careers, uh, begins to atrophy. And uh, the result of that is that they, they end up uh, really rejecting, uh, either implicitly or explicitly, a lot of the, the information that comes to them. So I don't think it's a core quality that people lack. I think that over time through conditions and other learning and other factors, people just don't exercise that muscle. So I, I don't think that I've got any unique skill as a good learner. I think that I'm very conscious about employing that skill in all of the problems that, that I face in business. I love that. Key advice to all of us listening to you is we should keep exercising our ability to learn. So I have one more thing is on a live core. From day one for Cardio Mobile, the ads that under your leadership, the teams put in, these are so simple, relatable. Like the first time I got introduced to the product, I right away could see how I need it in my life and who all. And you have had an incredible success and now you're guiding teams to create. So how do you connect to that level where people get it first time they see any of your ads? So I think that the, the first thing in, in creating marketing communications is understanding consumer disposition, not just about your category of products, 
but understanding where they are as consumers. And the thing about the age we're living in, Arjun, is that we are living in the age of the most edified consumerism that has existed uh, since the time people were trading rocks with one another. Uh, consumers know more about products than they ever have before. And not only that, but often consumers know more about your product than you as the maker of those products do. Um, I've seen it over and over again, where you find someone make a comment in social media about something about your product, and you then have a meeting with the product people and engineers, and you find out we actually didn't even know that the product either was succeeding in this way or was failing in a particular way, because we never used it that way. We never tried it. And that's just one example of how consumers are exposed to an enormous amount of information about the product and an enormous amount of information about how to uncover value in your product. So that understanding that consumers are going to make an edified choice, particularly with something that is, is a more durable good, which is our product. Our product at minimum costs around $100. Um, so naturally for things that cost three, five, ten dollars $10, um, there are impulse purchases where yes, consumers are still subject to buying those kinds of products without uh, very much research uh, because they're more affordable. But when you get to do more meaningful amounts of money, consumers know that they have the tools to be able to really understand uh, whether they're going to get uh, value for their money. Uh, and this includes not only doing uh, primary research about the product itself, but of course, consulting what other consumers have said about the product. So that understanding that you're dealing with an educated consumer, uh, I, I think should reflect on every single thing that you do in trying to speak with them. So that's kind of point one, and it's the baseline for every form of communication that I think that every uh, marketer or um, seller of anything to business or end users uh, has to consider. With respect to the specific product we have, which is an electrocardiogram device, the innovation of our product, as you know, Arjun, is that we allow people to perform this medical test which up until that point was really only available in hospitals. And we've got a product that people can take home or even put in their pocket. And they can take an FDA cleared medical grade electrocardiogram, which me measures the rhythm of your heart um, in a way they never could before. And they can do all of that for 99 bucks. So that's the idea. The question becomes, and I think this is the, the core of what you were asking, how do you talk about that in a way that's, that's meaningful uh, to people? And when I got to the company, the thing that they used to say about the product was this. If you've got atrial fibrillation, you should consider CardioMobile. Hmm. Now, the first thing is atrial fibrillation is of interest because uh, it is the number one arrhythmia that you can have in your heart. So of all the things that can go wrong, the thing that goes wrong most commonly is this thing called atrial fibrillation, which has to do with the movement of one of the atrium in your heart. And uh, I, I don't get into detail, but it is highly associated with a higher risk of stroke. So if, you, if you've got atrial fibrillation, you, you want to know that you have it, and then you want to have it uh, treated. The problem with the proposition of if you've got atrial fibrillation is that it presents people with a permission to ignore your message. That any marketing communication that starts with a concept of if um, it's saying, hey, listen, there are some of you that should listen to this message, but for those of you who answer no to the condition I'm about to present, then you really shouldn't listen to this message. And everybody wants, I know I do, permission to ignore things because we're faced with thousands of messages in our lives. 
And if the speaker is giving you permission to ignore, you will absolutely take advantage of it. So the very first thing that, that my team did was sort of remove that condition that we think that there are a wide range of reasons why you should be listening to us. And atrial fibrillation, the detection of atrial fibrillation is only one of those things. So we went through a fairly extensive primary research process uh, to understand uh, the habits and thoughts and feelings and perceptions of the users we already have. Um, and, and similarly, uh, the thoughts and feelings of those users that we had, had not yet uh, gotten. And what we found was that, that everyone is interested in their heart. And the truth is that more people, uh, as you may know, Arjun, die of heart disease uh, than of any other kind of ailment, including all cancers combined. Hmm. Um, so that it is a high level of interest for people who wish to stay healthy. And what this distilled down to was simply the question of, how's your heart? Those three words, how's your heart? Because most people want to know how their heart is, but uh, and I think in one of our ads, we say your, your heart doesn't have a check engine light. You've got no way of really assessing your heart rhythm today. So even if it comes back normal, mm -hmm. that delivers peace of mind to people who are interested in their health. Um, and that's, uh, the, those are the headlines of both the thinking that went into and the outcome of, of how we started and how we changed the communications around CardioMobile. I love that. And, you know, to me, the two things I will take from here is one is what you started by sharing is a true brand humility, where accepting and understanding that your consumers know more. So you're not standing on a podium and talking down. You are just respecting the customer. And the second is like absolutely gold when you talk about remove permission to ignore and I love that. How is your heart? Your heart does not have a check engine light. I really think it just relates to all of us and the emotion and the feeling that we have when the check engine light just comes on. Thank you for sharing this. So now let's go to Sirius, you know, the trademark. And it's a nationally recognized brand with 35 million current subscribers, which means there's at least another 30, 35 who are aware of the brand. What was the journey that got you and your team under your leadership to create this? So when I was a very young man in college, um, I worked in the radio business. And uh, I don't know if my voice has the fidelity it did back then, but uh, at a very young age, uh, in fact, at age 19, uh, I was on the radio in a big market, uh, happened to be New York City. And I was always interested in radio. And Many years later, uh, after I got out of the radio business and I worked in the advertising business, I came across this concept. And the name of the company was CD Radio. So if you remember compact discs, mm -hmm. uh, there was a time in the world where compact discs were actually regarded as being the gold standard in audio quality. So mm -hmm. the founders of this company decided that the transmission of digital radio uh, would be best expressed uh, in the name CD Radio. Uh, there were 11 employees at this company, and after getting cards and letters and all kinds of things from me, uh, the CEO had a meeting with me and hired me as the 12th employee at that company. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I did at that company, and this is before we had launched any satellites, before we had installed the radios in any cars, we were concepting what the business would be and should be. And one of the things I said was that the entire concept of our trademark will be outmoded and obsolete very soon if it isn't already today. And this is roughly around the year 2000 when it was very clear uh, that CDs uh, were going to be surpassed by 
not only DVDs, uh, but by the local storage of, of digital music um, on primitive uh, digital storage devices at that time. So I said that uh, if, we, if we didn't change the name, uh, we stood to be not just a dull generic descriptor of technology, but a dull generic descriptor of old dated technology. So uh, it, there's a challenge, of course, when you're trying to convince the founder, and by the way, the author of the name, uh, that it, you ought to change the name. Um, and I do think that probably uh, one of the greatest accomplishments I've had was, was not in whoever authored the name, and I'll talk about that in a second, but the very fact of convincing a founder uh, that the name he thought of, uh, really, which had been in the last 36 months before I joined, uh, is actually not the right name for the company. But I was uh, successful in making that argument, and then it becomes, well, what's the new name? And if anyone has gone uh, through a name generation exercise, they know that it includes the phases of one, which is that you generate an enormous list of names. Uh, and then the first thing you do is you look at them and you see how many of them you like. And if there are a thousand names, you end up, you're lucky that there are 50 that you think are even contenders and probably 40 of them are ones you really don't want to use, but they could make the list because you, you want to make, you want to leave some contenders there because you know that the next step is that you're going to send it to the lawyers. And then you send it to the lawyers and the lawyers tell you that of the 50 names you have, really none of them are usable because they've all got uh, some prior art associated with their use. Uh, which would make our company uh, liable and, and, and really renders the idea unusable of commencing to use them uh, if they're already in commercial use. So we actually went through this process um, at Sirius. In fact, the, uh, the second name or, or the name that survived before Sirius came up was the name Orbital. And uh, the company came very close to being named Orbital, but we simply could not come to terms with another owner of that trademark in a uh, somewhat related uh, space. So uh, there was a day in which uh, it, it really was uh, my, in a moment of despair, uh, looking at the sky and recalling what I think was a college astronomy class where I must have read that the brightest star in the northern hemisphere, I don't believe it's visible in the southern hemisphere, um, is a star called Sirius, which exists in a uh, constellation called Canis Major, which is the big dog. And uh, that dog star uh, is known by Sirius. And when we did a trademark search on that, uh, turned out that it was available. And so uh, the only objection we had was from our CFO at the time, who had a lisp and said, you can't pick a name with two S's. But we rapidly got over that concern. And uh, the company was named Sirius Radio. Wow. Fascinating story. And I really love the whole logic and the foresight that went in to create a brand that can stand the test of time instead of a brand which could have been great yesterday. So evolving from there to the, your impact on big brands on prime time, what have been some of the challenges that you have faced in your journey? And how do you overcome challenges? Like what's your first instinct when you see a challenge? How do you overcome them? So I think um, in the sort of digital uh, technology era, and probably even preceding it, that um, inside of companies, there, there's often a lot of challenge in the tension between product people and marketing people. And uh, the basic tension is that, you know, marketing want better output out of product people. That is, you know, if you give me a means of, of turning lead into gold, it'll certainly reduce the marketing challenge. Um, and at the same time, product people believe that generally the concepts they've delivered um, are highly marketable if, if you were only a, a better uh, marketer. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that uh, for me, uh, the way to resolve these kinds of issues in, inside of, of companies um, is that you have to be open to evidence-based uh, argument. Mm-hmm. And especially among product people and engineers, I think that evidence-based argument uh, makes a, a, a really big difference. I, I like to create what some people have called a meritocracy of ideas where it is really the case that we get into a room and we say, may the best ideas win. And it's, it's often a disappointment. And I think that the good companies do this more and the weaker companies do this less uh, in in which you are in a room in which the best idea is legitimately going to win. Because uh, I'm I'm sure many people listening to your podcast, Arjun have been in rooms in which it is quite obvious that the best idea is not winning. And it's not winning because someone has uh, some particular point of view that rules the day or someone has some particular bias or someone refuses to believe a certain input that is key to uh, what is evident to everybody else. Um, So I I think that to the extent that you can get a team of people to really worship at the altar of argumentative merit, uh, I I think it can have uh, a big impact. And with respect to research, uh, and that is whether quantitative research, qualitative research, uh, I think it plays a role. Uh, and the way I like to characterize the role of research um, in these kinds of conversations and sometimes debate is that I say, look, research gets one seat at this table. Research doesn't dominate the room. Uh, research doesn't speak a lot more loudly than anyone else, but it's entitled to a seat and we should hear what it has to say. And quite often, what it has to say should be compelling. So uh, I guess a, a long-winded answer to your question about how to resolve challenges is that I find a lot of challenges inside companies. And I think to the extent you can create a meritocracy of ideas and an agreement on, on evidence-based argument, you can make a lot of headway. I think, you know, what we talked about is you're changing culture for the brand and making everybody's idea win, which means I even walk into the room feeling more empowered that I have a responsibility. So I are looking at a lot of your impact whether it is cardiomobile to serious to everything, you have this uncanny, amazing skill of leading teams to create major brands. What's the common misconceptions that people have on brand building that you would love to debunk? Let me start with what I think brands are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, that brands are built uh, primarily on, on three things. So it's, it's the product itself, like what it does, how much it costs, et cetera the way it performs, I think, is as some people would call it. Uh, then it's what you, as the, the builder of that thing, say about it. And, and the third piece is what the people who have bought it or are considering purchasing it say about what's What's the word on the street? This is really the, the thing that NPS seeks to measure, right? What people uh, say about it. Uh, and really, uh, I think your question, to the extent it's about brand building, um, relates to the piece that's what, what do you, as under a communication executive's control, right? I'm gonna presume that the product is the product and then when it lands in consumers' hands, they're gonna do things that are largely outside of your control. So the piece of it we're talking about is mass market communications about your product, micro-targeted, doesn't matter. It's what you say about your product. And I, I think there was a time um, in the history of advertising, and I'm a bit of a, or try to be, a bit of a student of advertising in which there would be this concept that sizzle sells, that you can make the brand exciting or sexy or funny or glamorous and attach all of these attributes to it um, where those dimensions are going to be pivotal 
uh, to consumer purchase decisions. And I do think that even today, it is the case that with respect to certain classes of products, you know, the way a car makes you feel as a brand uh, in that it is a badge product, it's something you essentially wear, that the sizzle of those things, of colognes, maybe of uh, some alcohol products, uh, that the image of those brands end up becoming really pivotal, pivotal to what they are. But in the space that most of us trade in, in which there's a specific value that our product imparts to the consumer, I argue that to spend much time on the concept of the sizzle, uh, as some people call it, is probably a waste of time. Because as we discussed earlier in, in this conversation, Arjun, people get right through that. They spend time researching precisely what you've got, whether it delivers the qualities that they want and whether you're asking a fair price for it. So to the extent it's a considered purchase, look, for anything that's not a considered purchase, you can get away with anything. But I'm saying that you need to make a sell that works on a cognitive level more than we've ever had to before. The other thing I would say is that there, there, there's an all too common uh, slogan uh, in business, which is never give up. And I hate never give up. The reason I hate never give up is because it discourages people from seeing evidence that says what you're doing is wrong and you should stop doing it. So, mm -hmm. you know, when I talk to my marketing team and we see things that are simply not working, a never give up philosophy would be really counterproductive to what we're trying to do. So I think what happens is, you know, usually never give up just means, you know, if an inventor has a concept, he's going to keep going with it kind of thing. But unfortunately, it transcends that dynamic and it in affects other area of the areas of business. So someone has a concept that this marketing channel is going to work or this messaging is going to work or this price is going to work and they try it and, and it fails, but they choose never to give up. So if you're asking about things I'd like to debunk, I can tell you that in Marcom, certainly never give up is not a good thing. You need to give up as soon as you got evidence that it's not working. You can try it again at some point in the future because conditions change, um, but you absolutely have to be guided by the evidence and what your instruments are telling you about whether you're getting a return on your dollar. I like that. I also like the other part you talked about is sizzle cannot work by itself. And that connects to what you started at the very beginning is the level of information consumers have access to today. It's really tough to create a brand which does not ground in reality with all the information. So I don't know, who are three people who have influenced you in your journey <laughs> career, in your life? Well, I've been married for 20 years and uh, uh, my wife has such an enormous impact on everything that I do uh, from the way I think about myself to the way I think about my business. Um, that I, I really uh, can't uh, overexpress it. Uh, very specifically, she actually has a long background in retail, um, so that when I think about consumerism and I think about the interplay between the products I work on uh, and consumers, she just has been uh, such an invaluable resource in terms of helping me get to the insights that matter uh, and, and motivate people. So uh, certainly, my wife. Did you say I, I need I need three? I need three here, Arjun. Yeah, three would be good. But... Uh, okay, let me say. So the the, the I, I would mention this, and I'll I'll, I'll probably leave it this. I, I think I mentioned that I worked in radio, mm -hmm. and um, as a young man, and I was a, a very young man working for people who were uh, two and three times uh, my age. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I learned in the radio station newsroom in New York City that I worked in uh, was the value of disconfirming evidence. Uh, that is evidence that is inconsistent with what the conventional wisdom is. 
So in the newsroom, what that meant was you'd get a story and we spent a lot of time trying to assess whether it was true. And I remember uh, there was an editor who, when I was 20, I, I'm telling you, he was 70. And um, he would look at a story and he would say, interesting if true. And we would uh, seek to discover reasons why it might not be true, because it's, it's super easy to, to take things at face value. And whether that's an argument in a boardroom or a conference room, um, or whether it's some piece of research that you get, it's very easy to take it at face value. What's difficult um, is, is trying to really work at finding reasons why it might not be so. So that what I do in business, and it really is a direct outcome of this, the, this pursuit of disconfirming evidence, is that someone will have some sort of theory in business. We ought to, Ira, we ought to do this. And I'll say, you may be right. Let's spend a little time figuring out why we ought not do that. Mm -hmm. And if we fail to find reasons why we shouldn't do it, then he's probably got a pretty good idea, but we got to spend some cycles on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also find that I, I'm impatient when people look at our competition and will say, and it's very common, the competition's stupid. And I reject that entirely. I say, the competition has people who are as well-paid and as smart and as good-looking as we all are here, and you can be sure they've got a good reason. And if we don't know what that reason is, we haven't thought about it properly. So my two answers, I, I'm giving you two. My wife and some folks in the newsroom when I was a, a younger man. I love that. And to me, when you talked about competition being stupid, that mindset, a retail brand, a sports brand, they were offered by Amazon to put their brand on Amazon. These guys literally sat as a board and laughed and said, what can Amazon do? They don't know sports. We know sports. And they refused that and they thought they can create their own online. And of course, they vanished overnight after that. And you know what brand I'm talking about. So again, I think that is such an amazing insight. You're listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. Today, my VIP guest is Ira Bar, Chief Commercialization Officer at LightCore, the maker of Cardio Mobile, the most clinically validated personal ECG in the world. And the thing that I really, really hit home was working for a brand who is actually helping people empirically do, you know, it's the doing the good thing and is giving them a peace of mind. There are, there's at least one person and millions of them, but each of these people are sleeping better at night because of this product. Ira is an engaging storyteller in public and an inventive partner in private. This last section, Ira, is rapid questions, three to seven words, 10 words, answers. You ready? Uh, I guess so. You tell, you tell me after I give you answers that are too long. Go, go ahead. So now let us go beyond commercially successful big brands. I just want to look at the successful leader, Ira. What's your advice to anyone in any walk of life to be a successful leader? Empathy, empathy, empathy. That I, I think people are using that word more and more now. Empathy for customers, empathy for coworkers. If you can understand others, you're going to do a better job in everything that you do. So that word's getting used a lot. What does empathy mean to you, Ira? So I think when you study empathy, uh, there are actually two kinds. There's kind of emotional empathy. And that word actually has a long history of meaning, you know, I kind of know how you feel, right? Um, and it ends up becoming a soft word. And when I discuss with people why it hasn't been used in business, it's because it has some soft connotations. But what I'm talking about is cognitive empathy, simply mm -hmm. understanding what the person you're talking to 
is thinking about what you are saying. Hmm. Love that. So how do you define a big win in the business world? The, one, the, the wins that I find uh, most satisfying, Arjun, are when you have a counterintuitive idea, right? That the first time you say it, it seems to challenge the conventional wisdom and is counter to what most people think. Mm -hmm. And when it turns out that that counterintuitive idea is right, uh, mm -hmm. no, nothing makes me happier. Love that. One big reason businesses fail to take ideas to commercial success. I, I, I think that uh, people underestimate what's required to get commercial success um, so that they uh, think about the product and they think about the idea and they think long term. Uh, but making things successfully come from a commercial perspective requires an enormous amount of time, energy and work. So I guess my answer is underestimation of the obstacles even to take a big idea to market successfully. Love that. It's a totally extra skill. And working in the speaker world, I see so many speakers don't see that speaking great doesn't mean you'll have a great business. That's a business skill to get your skill and idea to the market. So most leaders rule out obstacles from their mind. Top athletes I worked with in personal branding, some of them remove the word no literally from the dictionary. You already talked about giving up, never give up. You have removed that from your dictionary. What else have you removed from your dictionary? What's not in Ida's dictionary? Anger. You, you, if, 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 if you find yourself in business getting angry, you're, you're doing the wrong thing. I think, you know, there are times you get frustrated, maybe a little impatient, but um, too often I've seen people show signs of, of anger. And, mm -hmm. and, and if your job is driving you to anger, um, I genuinely, look, I think people behave outrageously sometimes in business, but at the end of the day, this is your employment and you have to figure out how to manage yourself in that environment. So if you can get to the point of anger, in my estimation, there's something wrong with the way you're thinking about it, or you shouldn't be where you are. I'm not suggesting that there aren't legitimate reasons why sometimes you get angry, um, but that's the time you need to walk out the door. So um, I, I think that it is rare where, in fact, not rare. It is never the case where it should be reasonable that there is anger in the workplace. Love that. Uh, so Ira, if Ira in 2020 could go back to the young kid and give him advice when he's graduating just from high school, what would be one piece of advice you'll give him based on all your wisdom? Uh, this is an easy one, Arjun, because I, I tend to read uh, the writings of uh, people who are in advanced years. And uh, uh, one of them uh, that made the most impression on me, uh, he said that um, in his life, his only regret was what he called a failure of kindness. So that if I could go back to myself a bunch of years ago, I'd say, be kind. Uh, and then I'd say, buy some Amazon stock. <laughs> and Apple maybe too. So I don't, one of the things I find is sustained success like yours is not left to chance. Because one time success is very easy. Sustained success comes from process and planning. So is there a ritual that you go through first thing when you start your work day, last thing when you're finishing your work day that you go through that you're comfortable today? Well, for me, I, I really cannot exist in my world without having a sense that I understand what's happening in the world more generally. 
um, because it not only gives me grounding, but it makes me feel more confident in making assertions about what I'm going to do commercially, particularly when you're spending time working on products that are sold to consumers. So um, I spend a fair amount of time right after I wake up reading the news. I, I for whatever reason, I've chosen that I, I simply do not get news from television. Um, and I read uh, an enormous amount so that after, you know, I'm, I'm saying it's probably nearly an hour. Um, I feel like I have a sense of what's going on in the world, what's going on in politics, what's going on in business, what's going on in, in culture. Um, and by understanding those things, um, I not only feel better personally that I feel sort of more squarely and confidently placed in my environment, uh, but I also think um, I do a better job. And then uh, if I'm lucky before I go to bed and if I do the thing I should do, um, I should show appreciation for the good fortune that I've had in my life. So uh, that, that should be my, I can't tell you that I'm good enough to have that thought every night. Uh, but when you ask me about it, that's the one I should have. So just to follow up there is for any one of us, if we want to start our day like you and get real news of the world beyond, what are some sources that you recommend? Well, look, today, I think, uh, particularly with respect to the United States, um, being able to have a spectrum of news sources um, that you consult to really understand uh, the multifaceted nature, particularly of controversial stories, um, I read a range of media on the left and the far right uh, because I want to see what the rebuttals are. And this is disconfirming evidence. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in liberal California and, and there are a lot of the truths that we hold to be self-evident. Uh, well, there are a lot of people, you know, in other parts of the country and elsewhere and even in California that completely disagree. So I will go to the end of the continuum. I'm not going to mention any trademarks, but I'll go to the end of the continuum. I'll say, what are they saying about this? Um, so I, I think that that is consistent with one of the points I made earlier, Arjun, about seeking disconfirming evidence. Why is what I just saw um, in this uh, liberal media vehicle um, not true? And the answer might be found uh, in a very conservative media vehicle. Um, and with luck, and there are some, uh, there are ones that, that are reliably sound and in the middle and who cover both sides. So um, the answer is I, I, I read a wide spectrum of media. Love that. Sarah, this is very fascinating. Anything else you want to share? Uh, I believe, Arjun, as an interviewer, you've done an excellent job extracting all of the alleged wisdom that I have to impart to you and your listeners, sir. Thank you. Now, I have something to send to my mother that I did a great job. So thank you, Arjun. <laughs> thank you so much, Arjun. It's been a pleasure. Okay. So this was a fascinating conversation with Ira Bard. And a few things that will stay with me is right at the beginning, Ira talked about keep, keep exercising the ability to learn. It's like all of us have the skill, but some of us stop using it and it just starts fading in us. Ira also talked about what I felt was true brand humility, where you never disrespect the knowledge of the customer. Even Ira put it where initially I was like, oh, what is he talking about? But then I got it. It's sometimes your cons consumer, your customer knows more about your product than you. And that humility, I think, is very important. He also talked about anytime you are getting people in a room to get a create a new idea, start with a simple rule, may the best idea wins. And the best idea is about the brand, the customer not about the person with the title. And finally, last but not least, the talking about seek disconfirming information evidence is very important was 
anytime there's an idea, the strength of the idea comes from all of us challenging it. And in that process, we all get bought into the concept. Again, Ira, thank you. This was really fascinating. Thank you all for listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. Please subscribe, share, and review this podcast with your friends. And happy listening. Thank you all. You've been listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, brand whisperer, top brand growth driver, and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. To learn more, visit www.zenmango.com. Share this podcast with your friends and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.